0: Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Monday, October 3rd, 2022. I hope everybody had a good weekend. The first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Anthony Blinken says that the Nord Stream sabotage is a tremendous opportunity. So Blinken said this on Friday during a joint press conference with Canadian Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie. And what he said was, The attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines that caused these massive leaks into the Baltic Sea offer a tremendous opportunity to end Europe's dependency on Russian energy. And I got the clip for you right here. I'll play it for you. Ultimately, um, this is also a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity to once and for all remove the dependence on Russian energy and thus to take away from uh, Vladimir Putin. The weaponization of energy is a means of advancing uh, his uh, imperial designs. Uh, that's very significant, and, and that offers tremendous um, strategic opportunity for um, for the years to come. But meanwhile, we're determined to do everything we possibly can uh, to make sure that the consequences of all of this are not borne by citizens in our countries, or for that matter, around the world. So I got that clip, uh, I saw that Aaron Monte put that on Twitter, because I haven't really seen any other coverage of this, uh, except for I saw a write-up about it in RT, but I think uh, it's pretty uh, headline-worthy of a thing that Blinken said there, and he made these comments when asked what the US and Canada are doing to ease Europe's energy crisis in the wake of these sabotage attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines. And Blinken said that Washington had been working for some time, uh, talking you know, before these this incident, to provide Europe with more energy. And as a result, the U.S. is now Europe's biggest supplier of liquefied natural gas, LNG. Um, he said, quote, and we're now the leading supplier of LNG to Europe to help compensate for any gas or oil that it's losing as a result of Russia's aggression against Ukraine, end quote. So, over the years, the US has worked hard to oppose Nord Stream 2 by imposing sanctions, but they failed to stop the pipeline's construction. Construction was finished sometime last year, but the project was paused by Germany after Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, there was always a chance Nord Stream 2 could be brought back online if relations thawed between Europe and Russia, but now the damage could be irreparable. And uh, also when it comes to the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, that was always, that's been delivering gas since 2011, I believe, was that when that first came online. That's been shut down for a few weeks. That's Russia's uh, in response to these Western sanctions. And, you know, they accused Russia of weaponizing energy. But, you know, it's, it was obvious that Russia was going to respond when the U.S. and the EU basically declared an economic war on Russia. Uh, but at this point, it's not clear who is behind the attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines. There's no evidence uh, pointing to anybody, but the U.S. certainly has a motive. There are reasons to think that, you know, that the U.S. would want to do something like this. And Putin on Friday, he blamed the Ang- what he called the Anglo-Saxons for the incident, appearing to point the finger at the U.S. and its allies. He said, quote, sanctions are not enough for Anglo-Saxons. They have turned to sabotage. It's unbelievable, but true, having organized explosions on the international gas pipelines of the Nord Stream, end quote. Uh, Putin made that comments during a big speech he gave on Friday, where he signed off on the annexation of those territories in Ukraine that recently held referendums. Uh, So the U.S. has rejected the claim that it was behind the attack. And Western media, even though these pipelines are mainly owned by Gazprom, which is Russia's state gas company, they're still hinting that Russia was responsible. We've seen Ukraine accuse Russia and some Western officials have accused Russia. But all these reports, I mean, it's unbelievable how how they just insinuate that Russia is the one with the motive uh, to do this, even though it's their pipeline that they could turn on and off. Um, and the Associated Press had this article over the weekend that called this the, the idea that the U.S. was involved a baseless conspiracy theory that was being pushed by the Kremlin and Russian state media. And this article did not mention, whether it purposely ignored or the author didn't know about it, the, uh, that one of the biggest, the most significant allegations came from a member of European Parliament, which I've, I've went over this a few times, Radic. Sikorsky, he's a former Polish foreign minister. He was also a defense minister. He wrote on Twitter, "Thank you, USA," with a picture of the gas bubbling on the surface of the Baltic Sea, and that wasn't mentioned. In the, you know, we haven't really seen any coverage of that in in the mainstream media. Um, and the AP story it also left out the context that the U.S. had been trying to stop Nord Stream Two for years and years from being constructed through sanctions and pressure on the German government. You know, they were threatening Germany with sanctions. I mean, it was, they were really uh, trying to stop this thing. And you would think that would be worth mentioning in an article about this, but no, it's just a baseless conspiracy theory to the AP. So that, you know, again, we're going to see a lot of stuff put out about this, how they're going to try to blame Russia. Um, But, you know, you just got to stay vigilant when it comes to this stuff. And now, uh, so neither pipeline was carrying gas to Europe at the time of the sabotage. Both pipelines were holding gas under pressure. And experts are saying that these leaks resulted in uh, the, the largest ever single release of methane gas. And the leaks were discovered last Tuesday, early Tuesday. And Danish authorities said Nord Stream 2 just stopped leaking on Saturday and Nord Stream 1 stopped on Sunday. And it kind of strikes me that you would think this major pollution event, maybe you would hear a little more about it from uh, the U.S. from the Biden administration if it was a different situation. Seems like they don't care too much about the environmental damage. Same thing, you know, just with the media too in general. This, I don't know, just doesn't seem right. Um, But anyway, the next one. So this is just a follow-up. On Friday, I went over uh, the Senate. Well, President Biden, late Friday night, he signed a stopgap funding bill that includes up to $16 billion in new aid for Ukraine. And a lot of media outlets haven't really gotten this right uh, because it includes a $12.3 billion aid package. That's for economic aid for Ukraine and military aid. But there's also this $3.7 billion presidential drawdown authority that lets biden send weapons directly from u.s military stockpiles so that adds up to 16 billion uh, 2.1 billion of that is rolled in from the 40 billion from the last aid package if you if that's not too confusing um, but this brings total u.s spending on this war to 67.5 billion um, so it's a lot of money and it's only meant to last, I think, three months, this next package, so this $12.3 billion, so we could expect more in the future. All right, and the next one here, Lloyd Austin says that it's possible Putin could use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. So Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin on Sunday said that, he thinks it's possible he, he didn't rule it out the idea that putin could use a nuclear weapon in ukraine although he hasn't seen indications that such a decision has been made so he said this in an interview with cnn that aired on sunday austin said quote the guy who makes that decision is one man there are no checks on mr putin just as he has made the irresponsible decision to invade ukraine he could make another decision but I don't see anything right now that would lead me to believe he has made such a decision. End quote. So Austin, who is a former Raytheon board member, he was responding to questions about Putin's recent warning that Russia could use nuclear weapons to defend its territorial integrity. And Russia's territory will, will now extend into the Donbass, Kherson, and Zaporizhia regions of Ukraine after Putin signed off on the annexation which is expected to be ratified by Russia's Houses of Parliament this week. Uh, The Federation Council and the State Duma are expected to sign off on that. Um, That'll make everything official. So Austin made clear that the U.S. will not recognize these territories as Russian, and he said that there's not going to be a change to Washington's support for Kiev, despite these warnings from Putin, despite this major risk of escalation. He said, quote, we can expect the Ukrainians will continue to move forward in an attempt to take back all of the territories within their sovereign borders. I don't think that's going to stop, and we are going to continue to support them in their efforts, end quote. So again, he said that they're going to continue to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. That's been his message. Uh, he keeps saying, using the phrase, the long haul, uh, the there's no end in sight for this policy, even though he's saying that Putin could potentially use a nuclear weapon. Um, and, and he's saying that based on what the policy is now, just supporting Ukraine, uh, and it's, and in it's counteroffensives in, uh, on these territories. I mean, you know, that risk is there and he's acknowledging it, but they're still just going right ahead. Uh, it's just, it's just insane to me. Um, the next one here, Erdogan, the Turkish president, he uh, he repeated the threat that Turkey could block Sweden and Finland from joining NATO. So Erdogan reiterated on Saturday that Ankara could block Sweden and Finland from joining NATO if the two countries don't fulfill a deal that they signed with Turkey on joining the alliance. So Sweden and Finland, they've signed their what they call ascension protocols to join NATO, and that sends their membership bid to each alliance member's parliament, parliaments. Uh, so the U.S. Senate ratified it. So far, 28 out of the 30 members, 30 NATO members, ratified their memberships, with only Hungary and Turkey remaining. So Hungary, as we know, doesn't go along with the EU sanctions. I haven't seen anything. I should look into it more because I haven't really looked into it. But I haven't seen them say anything about opposing Sweden and Finland joining NATO. But it's interesting that they're one of the last holdouts, too. Um, But it's not necessarily because they're holding out. They might have just not gotten to it yet. I'm not sure. But Turkey, they are holding out. They want to make sure that Sweden and Finland fulfill this deal that they signed with them back in June because Turkey initially blocked them from joining. Turkey's main gripes with Sweden and Finland, they accuse them of supporting the PKK, which is a Kurdish militant group that Turkey, as well as the EU and the U.S., all consider to be a terrorist organization. Under the deal Sweden and Finland signed, they agreed to cooperate on extradition of suspected PKK members, but there hasn't been any progress really in that area. Uh, But another aspect of the agreement was for Sweden and Finland to lift an arms embargo that they put on Turkey in 2019 in response to Erdogan's invasion of northeast Syria and sweden announced that it's reversing its ban on exporting military goods to turkey so they ease that embargo sweden did so that's a step toward fulfilling the agreement but uh only time will tell to see if uh, they they satisfy erdogan enough to uh be able to join nato Um, but it would really be nice if uh um you know he they he blocks them but um he erdogan He said, quote, until the promises made to our country are kept, we will maintain our principled position. We are closely following whether the promises made by Sweden and Finland are kept or not. And, of course, the final decision will be up to our great parliament, end quote. Okay, um, so I just want to take a moment. I got to mention that it is fundraising season at Antiwar.com, and we are uh, trying to raise our uh, money to keep the site going. I mean, we're entirely reliant on reader support. Your donations go straight to keeping the site running, paying, uh, our very small staff. Um, and we have a great lineup of, uh, people in endorsing us for this fundraiser, right? For on today's page, we have a great, uh, piece from Kelly Vlahos. She's the editorial director of Responsible Statecraft, uh, formerly of the American Conservative, and she used to be a regular writer and reporter for Antiwar.com, and she just wrote a great um, uh, pitch for us, uh, for you guys to, to help us out and donate. Um, you know, I liked how she described Antiwar.com. Uh, she said that it's considered the real nerve center for non-interventionism, and the most reliable hub for daily foreign policy and national security news on the Internet today. So that uh, it's pretty great to see her say that, That you know, we have some of the best news coverage out there. And if you listen to this show and you, you like what I'm doing, I mean, this is all antiwar.com. I wouldn't be able to do this without it. Um, so if you go to antiwar.com slash donate, you could see the different ways uh, you could you could uh give to us and you know we take crypto and all things like that so go check that out uh we really appreciate the support and you know we don't have any sort of corporate sponsors or anything it's all reader supported to put out all this content that we give you guys each day um all right back to the news so this is from Friday Kyle Anzalone wrote this up uh Zelensky says Ukraine is already a de facto NATO member so on Friday after Putin had his ceremony and he signed off on annexation and his speech was very interesting. Putin's speech. Um, if you want to read it, you could go to the Kremlin's website, their English language website. They have the whole thing there. Um, you know, it's just so much about the U S and the West and NATO. I mean, it's just very clear that, you know, to him, he's fighting a war against the West. And, But, after that speech, or maybe around the same time, Zelensky announced that he was submitting an application to join NATO um, and he said that Ukraine is already a de facto member pretty much, and that's kind of uh, uh it's fun you know this application again was was rejected like it's been, but stoltenberg the 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 head of of NATO. He said that NATO's doors remains open. They always say the door remains open. Um, Sullivan, Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, he said that Ukraine's NATO status should be taken up at a different time. So uh, they're just always getting rejected for this membership. Yet the U.S. refused uh, in negotiations with Russia before the war to put in writing that Ukraine won't ever join NATO. Um, and this this idea that they have become a de facto NATO member, I think, is is true, Even uh, not even just now, but if you look at since 2014, the U.S. and NATO were in Ukraine training Ukrainian troops. There was CIA, we recently learned, on the front lines of the Donbass war uh, on Russia's border, you know, helping them out. Um, they started sending military equipment, and now it's really been put in hyperdrive since the war. Um, I mean, is there, there's no other NATO member that's getting this much aid from the U.S. Um, So, you know, I think what, what he says is, is, is right that they are de facto NATO member. And although they, you know, keep getting rejected for real membership and the U.S. and NATO uh, don't seem like they will directly intervene, at least at this point. Um, although it seems, you know, again, from Russia's point of view, they are fighting a war against the U.S. and NATO. That's how intimately involved that they are with this military support, weapons support, intelligence training, and all that stuff. All right, so the next one here, this is bad news. Uh, The Yemen ceasefire has expired without extension, raising fears of escalation. So the U.N. special envoy for Yemen on Sunday said that the ceasefire between the Houthis and the U.S.-backed Saudi-led coalition expired on Sunday without the two sides agreeing on an extension. So the truce was extended twice before it lasted for six months, and while there was some fighting on the ground, uh, there were no Saudi airstrikes were reported in Yemen during this whole period, marking the longest period of calm in the war since the U.S.-backed coalition intervened in 2015. The UN envoy for Yemen, Hans Grunden, Grunberg, he said that he submitted a proposal to extend the ceasefire to the warring sides, to the warring sides on Saturday, but a deal was not reached. Um, the ceasefire, as part of the deal, it, there was flights uh, resumed from the Sana'a airport in Yemen. There were some flights in and out and fuel shipments, more of them were allowed into the red sea port of Hodeida, that's been under blockade uh, but the blockade was not fully lifted some ships were still restricted the airport was you know had a very limited number of flights and for the houthis that's been a condition for real peace talks for a real political settlement is for that's for the blockade to be lifted and then um, for their part the saudi coalition they want the houthis to open more ro- roads around the city of Taiz. Uh, which is an area the Houthis uh, have surrounded and control uh, the roads. Um, so uh, the Houthis, they said that the ceasefire talks had reached a dead end and that there's not a serious willingness to address the humanitarian issues, which is a reference, I would, I guess, to the blockade. Um, so the lack of ceasefire, it, it raises fears of an escalation uh, and a worsening situation for the civilian population. According to Middle East Eye, humanitarian groups said that the truce has led to a 60% reduction in casualties and quadrupled the amount of fuel being imported into Hodeidah. So there was a lot of good that came out of this ceasefire. Um, And what's worrying is that the months preceding the ceasefire saw some of the heaviest Saudi airstrikes in Yemen since early in the war. Um, I was following it very closely uh, in January 2022 that month marked the highest civilian casualty rate in the saudi air war since 2016 and the the early years of of the war were the most brutal when saudi arabia was just indiscriminately bombing civilians uh just constantly uh with u.s weapons u.s warplanes, and um so this all comes as i've talked about this a lot And it's really important. There's a war powers resolution introduced in Congress in both the House and Senate that would end U.S. involvement in the war, which would effectively ground the Saudi Air Force since it relies on U.S. maintenance. So resolutions, uh, there's over 100 bipartisan co-sponsors. You can call 1-833-STOP-WAR to tell your representative to support these resolutions. And I mean, they have to hold a vote. Hopefully at some point, I, I don't really know what they're waiting on, but you know, if you get on the phone and, and you express support for it, I think it's a pretty important thing to do. Uh, and cause I mean, this can really escalate and get really ugly again, really quick. Um, and you know, the years we're running out of time because, uh, if, if, uh, they don't introduce this resolution by the end of the year it resets and it has to be drafted and, mm-hmm get co-sponsors all over again. So um, hopefully there's there's some driving force behind that to get it going. Um, anyway, the next one, Iran, Iran released two American prisoners over the weekend, and they're saying that the U.S. is going to unfreeze $7 billion in frozen funds. So this is according to Iranian media. Um, Iran is expecting the U.S. to release this $7 billion that has been held by South Korea since 2018 when the U.S. pulled out of the nuclear deal and reimposed sanctions. So Iran released two Iranian-Americans from prison. One was able to leave the country to seek medical treatment. And when these releases were first announced, it sounded temporary. But then we saw Iran's news agency, IRNA, say that the release was part of a broader deal to release funds. Uh, the IRNA report said quote "With the finalization of negotiations between Iran and the United States to release the prisoners of both countries, seven billion of Iran's blocked resources will be released end quote. So while they're saying that uh, they're going to release this money, I mean they've been trying they've been working on this for a while trying to get these funds released. I haven't seen any sign that the Biden administration would do something like that, because that's that uh would, you know, for for a prisoner exchange. Now, there has been talk about prisoner swaps and they, they've been in talks about that. Um, there's dozens of Iranians held in the U.S., mostly over allegations of violating sanctions. But it sounds like Iran's trying to get this seven billion uh from releasing these two. Uh, So we'll see what happens. And this comes as the Iran nuclear deal talks are stalled. But Iran has been saying that they're ready to make a prisoner swap. Then we see these two released. Um, So we'll see what keep an eye on that. And the last one here, this is from Jason Ditz. Turkey has launched some pretty major uh, strikes on Iraq, and Syria against the Kurdish groups. Turkey's defense minister has reported that 30 PKK fighters were killed, and the largest attack was in Assos, Iraq, where 23 were reported killed. They reported a separate incident in Syria, saying that they killed 7 PKK. Um, So these have become, you know, these are pretty common Turkish attacks in these areas, but this is a pretty major one. There's always the risk, uh, you know, Turkey has and, in, in, you know, got into Iraq and Syria a lot in the past few years, um, you know, under the uh, to, to go fight these Kurdish groups. Um, but that's it for the news for today. Uh, we have some good viewpoints, as always. Again, that great one from Kelly about antiwar.com and why you should donate. Uh, but you can. Uh, oh, I just want to mention again this Saturday at the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. There's going to be a rally for Julian Assange, and I will be there speaking. Uh, Please attend that if you can. It's from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. It's the most important case of our lifetime. Our freedom depends on Assange's freedom. Um, There's rallies in other cities. Uh, I'll get that info for you. Um, I know Kyle Anzalone, our opinion editor, he's going to be speaking at one in Denver. Um, So if you're in that area, you could go to that. There's also going to be one in San Francisco. Um, I'm going to put the link because there's a link for this that I forgot to have before I recorded. Uh, but I'll put the link in the description of all the different Assange, uh, the demonstrations for Assange. It's very important. Um, but that's it for me for today. You can contact the show news at antiwar.com. Follow me on Twitter. You can message me there. Um, donate to antiwar.com. That's how this is all done. And I'll catch you tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.